I'm Mike Ward, and I'd like to welcome you to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. In this series, we intend to throw the spotlight on the healthcare ecosystem, focusing on its current business challenges and opportunities. In each episode, I'll be talking to key leaders and stakeholders in the industry about how they're anticipating business challenges and navigating the market dynamics. Initially, our series will examine the numerous challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic has unleashed on the healthcare industry. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, uh, John Yeager, uh, a partner in DRG Consulting. John specializes in US pricing, market access, and reimbursement, and recently conducted a survey on how COVID-19 is impacting how physician practices are caring for patients with pre-existing conditions unrelated to the pandemic. So John, uh, welcome and, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Hope you and uh, all your loved ones are well. Thanks very much. And I, I hope you're, uh, you and your family are doing well as well. So John, watching the news reports, watching the news reports in the general media, we're all aware that healthcare providers everywhere are having to focus much of their attention on the acute needs of COVID-19 patients. So from your conversations with physicians, what has been the, the most notable impacts on their ability to actually care for patients? Uh, yeah, so we've really seen three primary buckets. So as you can imagine, uh, care has been disrupted Quite significantly, and I don't think that's really a surprise to many. Um, but you know, the scale and the depth and breadth of that is still very much uncertain. So we've really uncovered three key findings. One is that specialists are reporting, again, unsurprisingly, that access to care and delivery of care is um, is really changing, and they're it's forcing physicians and specialists in in particular. Uh, to adapt to evolving social norms. The second piece is prescribers are considering different factors when making treatment decisions that they may not have considered previously or may not have prioritized uh, in a way that they have uh, in this current environment. And the last piece is that physicians really do not foresee care uh, delivery, delivery normalizing uh, in the near future. I think most specialists see things extending uh, well beyond the next three months, and for a lot of physicians, maybe not even uh, within the next year. Right. Okay. So, well, before we dig deeper into those key impacts that you know you've just communicated, could you just sort of you know, outline the structure of the survey? You know, how was it conducted? You know, what types of physician did you actually talk to? Absolutely. So, uh, in response to the really the vacuum of information that existed. Uh, as it relates to the impact of, of patients with pre-existing conditions, a lot of the a lot of the patients that are already in the healthcare system uh, prior to the outbreak of COVID nineteen, uh, we wanted to get some information as quickly as possible. So we conducted a, a very brief ten minute web survey uh, with a little over a hundred physicians across five different specialty groups. The five specialty groups are rheumatology, psychiatry gastroenterology, neurology, and oncology. And as I said, the purpose of the survey was designed to quickly capture insights 
on how care is being delivered for patients with pre-existing conditions, particularly the sickest patients, those that are already receiving uh, specialty biologics. Okay, and, and, and these physicians, they're all, they're all based in the States? Yes, this was a US-based survey. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, so let's, let's turn to, I guess, the, the issue that you uh, highlight first, the, so the access and delivery of care. You know, in the conversations, you know, what came up as the most prominent challenges and you know, how have you know, the healthcare practices adapted to those changes? Absolutely. So as you can imagine, and as we talked to a little bit earlier, uh, care is being disrupted across the board. Increased patient cancellations, reduced office hours, uh, diminished office staff, uh, delays in receiving additional supplies and even access to, to appropriate treatments. Um, and you're even seeing delays to, to treatment. But to answer your, your question a little bit more pointedly, we're seeing significant reductions in the availability of in-office infusions. Um, as a consequence, practices are reacting in, in two primary ways. First, they're beginning to look for alternative treatments that can be self-administered. So um, in scenarios where they otherwise would have considered a physician-administered therapy, maybe through an in-office infusion uh, or an outpatient another type of outpatient pharmacy uh, facility, uh, they, they are looking to self-administered therapies. And this is really happening across the board, not only um, in uh, uh, rheumatology, gastroenterology, but, in but also oncology as well. Um, secondarily, they're also increasingly looking towards delivery of care through home health. Uh, traditionally, this has been a slower growth area and something that both patients and providers have been somewhat resistant to. Um, but we are seeing an increase in receptivity to that where you're seeing about 22% of patients are being reported to shifting to some type of home health option for administration of therapy. Right. Okay. So, yeah, there's quite a few insights there, um, which we will um, definitely explore. Um, so physicians, they're, they're focusing more time and resources to the most at-risk patients, is this shift consistent irrespective of the specialty or, you know, and what about their ability to see new patients? Yeah, so, well, the data is pretty clear that physicians are delaying and prioritizing care across specialty, um, but there are some variabilities based on two factors, and it really comes down to urgency and risk. So urgency being how important is it to start or and or continue therapy in the immediate term for that individual patient? Uh, the second piece, as I mentioned, is risk. And what we mean by that is the extent to which uh, treatment will expose the patient to enhanced risk for COVID-19. Um, so including those risk factors, you start to see some interesting trends. So you look at oncologists and psychiatrists, they have the lowest levels of treatment delays. Oncologists, given the need for treatment right away, as you can imagine, um, and psychiatrists, given the need for treatment, um, but also they're not as much risk. So some of these some of these specialty biologics that are, are given can enhance uh, your, or I'm I'm sorry, can reduce 
um, your immune system and as a consequence can enhance your risk for COVID-19 um, and the uh, potential downstream effects. So there's less risk uh, for psychiatrists in treating their patients uh, with their therapies. Uh, rheumatologists and gastroenterologists are showing a bigger willingness to delay treatment given the diminished urgency for most patients uh, associated with their conditions. And you're also increasing the risk with use of some of the therapies in that space. And, 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 and who's driving that? Is, is, it, is it physicians suggesting to patients that actually you shouldn't come and visit? Or is it patients actually sort of your concern for their own health, you know, knowing that they're on you know, immunosuppressants, that they might be at risk by going out further? Like most things, it's usually something in between, but uh, the data suggests that this is primarily being driven by physicians. Um, there is, you know, some sort, uh, there is some form of warehousing that's occurring just through diminished demand uh, on the patient side. So that certainly is a factor, but we do know that physicians are weighing these risks uh, in treatment and, and patients are relying very heavily on the recommendations of their physicians. So Aside from some diminished demand on the patient's side uh, with access to the healthcare system, the decisions themselves are really coming down to what the physician feels is most appropriate. Right. I mean, one of the things that you know I've sort of you know, seen in some of the sort of the general media is that there are concerns that you know patients, you know, potentially new patients are actually avoiding going to uh, healthcare practices, um, and therefore there is a sort of the danger that they might not their 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 diseases are not diagnosed early enough. Is, you know how how is how is that risk being being managed? Sure. So the you know we, there's a question that we have a little bit later. So I might be. Uh, jumping ahead uh, in terms of things that we wanted to discuss today, but I actually feel as though that could be the second wave and impact that could occur within the healthcare system, meaning that you have a, a almost a warehousing effect, as I mentioned earlier, of patients waiting to receive care. Um, in addition, you have all the existing patients that might either be delaying care or doing kind of the bare minimum until uh, it's a little bit safer for them to, to pursue all treatment options. So the demand that is about to come on the U.S. healthcare system over the coming 12 to 18 months could be quite significant for those that aren't necessarily facing distress as it relates to COVID-19. Um, so that pent-up demand in the system is going to put massive strains downstream on the healthcare system perhaps in areas that we're not quite seeing today. Right, right. And, and having observed you know, sort of a, an unsurprising jump in, in virtual engagement with patients, which ones, which of those changes do you think might represent a permanent change in sort of, you know, care and which may revert to pre-pandemic norms? Yeah. Well, as you can imagine, it is really hard to say what will have a lasting impact. But, you know, we do think there is a chance to this is an opportunity really for both patients and physicians to reimagine how care is delivered. 
understandably, adoption to virtual care has been relatively slow and fairly stratified by age, um, you know, as most technological adoption is. Uh, as an, but as an outgrowth of this pandemic, we anticipate that overall, the general willingness to engage virtually uh, with providers will increase. Um, you know, we've seen in particular, we've seen some big jumps in psychiatry, which makes a lot of sense given the nature of the discipline. Uh, we've also seen bumps in oncology. Um, however, we don't imagine that that will stay in place much, much further. Um, where I'm actually most interested to see is how this starts to impact the delivery of primary care and the extent to which this changes the willingness and nature of how um, maintenance care is delivered. Um, I also wonder about low-level emergency care um, and how this might potentially impact adoption of uh, virtual ways of engaging uh, care for you know, things such as fever and, and other pediatric type care. So I think there's a large degree of impact across the healthcare system um, and, you know, see, and we'll see it across a wide range of different ways. But overall, we anticipate that this will raise the willingness and the collective comfort, both with physicians and patients with virtual care. Um, and, you know, but there will be some level of variability um, based purely on the severity of the condition, thinking about maybe less virtual care in oncology and more for primary care or low-level emergency care. So, so do you get a, a sense that it will be physicians who are going to be sort of you know, driving that, that greater acceptance of you know, virtual, um, uh, virtual care, or, or is it something that patients actually kind of recognize that there, there are some advantages uh, to that? I think in this scenario, ultimately, patient comfort is going to be critical here, uh, particularly when you start thinking about the adoption of this type of technology with older patients. So, you know, the bulk of healthcare utilization resides in the older population, um, and there's a direct inverse relationship with that and the adoption of technology. So, um, you know, patient comfort and patient adoption is going to be critical, you know, not only in you know, willingness and comfort, but just availability of technology and being able to navigate these platforms and being comfortable with that. Um, you know, in-person care delivery is always go is going to be a critical part of a viable and strong healthcare system. Um, but finding ways to leverage virtual care in more effective and efficient ways uh, is going to be absolutely critical. But you know, contingent upon that is ultimately patient comfort. And if patients aren't comfortable, they won't use it. And if they won't use it, um, then that limits the ultimate utility of any type of virtual care. Okay. And I mean, other sort of, yeah, any other sort of you know, changes in how care practices deliver care that, that COVID-19 uh, is, is throwing up? Now, as we mentioned previously, we have seen an increase in the delivery of care through home health. Um, and that's an area that is much more cost effective um, and more efficient. And giving both providers and patients increased levels of exposure to the benefits of home health uh, absolutely presents an opportunity uh, 
uh, particularly in the payer environment. Okay, um, so the benefits, but are there any sort of, you know, sort of challenges you know, associated with that switch from you know, physician-administered treatment to, you know, as you say, sort of, you know, patient uh, self-administration? Absolutely. So it changes things quite dramatically across uh, a range of different pillars, but three that we identified proactively was one is just ensuring appropriate administration, right? So a lot of times the physician values um, having the patient go through a physician-administered therapy because they can ensure that treatment has been uh, delivered effectively and uh, to the right dosing requirements. Um, so obviously they lose that, that component. A lot of times, you know, secondarily, there, a lot of times there's the ancillary benefit of a physician-administered therapy is it provides another touch point with the patient. So remember, the individuals that are receiving specialty biologics that require physician administration in many circumstances are quite sick um, or are dealing with a lot of other challenges, you know, sometimes that extend uh, beyond their diagnosis. Um, so the ability to engage with those patients and have additional touch points with the healthcare system, whether it's with the physician themselves uh, or even a nurse or a physician assistant, it enables another touch point, provides more information, and can help ensure better care for the patient. So you do lose that uh, on some level with, with home health delivery. The last piece that uh, by moving to from physician administered to self administered, uh, the payer dynamics and the insurance health insurance dynamics do shift a little bit. So there's higher levels of control by payer organizations, particularly around product choice and um, the order that products can be taken. And there's also different considerations from an out of pocket standpoint. Um, so there there could be differential copays or coinsurances. Uh, there could be different dynamics with out-of-pocket maximums. So uh, those situations do change things a little bit from a treatment selection uh, perspective as well. So, you know, those are all things that biopharmaceutical manufacturers are going to have to be aware of and start to think more critically about in the future as they're designing their patient support programs. So have, have you yeah, heard or do you have any evidence that there that we're actually sort of seeing patients being switched from, you know, one one drug or one treatment to to a different one for for, for those reasons. Sure. So um, what I can say is that the data the data shows uh, two things in particular. One, we have um, about twenty two percent on average, about twenty two percent of patients. Um, that were already being treated with a physician-administered therapy um, are, are being moved to a self-administered therapy. So that's quite a significant jump. Now, there's a high degree of variability between the different specialties there. And you look at a specialty like oncology, that's a little less likely. Um, you, you aren't seeing as many patients switch over um, from existing physician-administered therapy to a self-administered therapy. You know, physicians have demonstrated that uh, their oncologists, I should say, have demonstrated that they're not as comfortable switching patients mid-regimen, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but you see for new patients, um, we asked the question, you know, what percentage of patients that would have gotten 
would have otherwise gotten a physician administered therapy, but are now being prescribed a self-administered therapy. And on average, you see that number be, is about 30%. And that's pretty consistent across all specialties. So you're seeing a significant portion of the patient population being shifted over to self-administered therapies. Um, in addition to that, what that doesn't speak to is the diminished level of demand, right? So really starting to put a under, put really starts to put uh, a sense of scale and size around what the potential challenges and diminished demand could be for physician administered therapies in the future. Yeah, and and I guess also means that actually, you know, drug uh, manufacturers are going to, you know, probably have to think probably a little bit more about how their drugs are going to be administered. You know, rather it's going to be if there's going to be this shift from physician administered to self-administration. So, so just, you just, I, I mean, I know it's impossible to sort of, you know, predict, you know, how long uh, the pandemic is going to uh, be uh, disruptive. Um, but I just wondered, you know, whether, you know, in their planning and the way that they've already had to adapt their, their practices, whether sort of the physicians had sort of you know, any sense of you know, how long they thought uh, this disruption uh, might last or how long it would, it would be okay for them. Sure. So as you said, no one has a crystal ball here and everybody is really kind of building the bridge as we're crossing it. So this is, uh, this is a really tricky question to answer. Um, so what we what we do know is that about two thirds of the specialists anticipate that uh, this will extend at least another three months. Now I think that's a pretty conservative estimate, but you know when asked how long this will be disruptive to their practice, you're seeing at least three months. You know more specifically, you know a, a plurality of specialists, about forty percent of our specialists, so just under half, anticipate that things will begin to normalize over the next three to six months. Um, but there is quite a significant portion, about 25% of specialists do not really foresee things starting to normalize uh, until, you know, beyond six months or even more in some cases. So, you know, what this tells me is that uh, we are in the, we are kind of a, a little bit closer to the beginning than, than towards the end in terms of, of where we sit in terms of the impact, at least from a care delivery standpoint. Uh, from the specialist standpoint. And then what this doesn't speak to is all the downstream ramifications that we talked about in terms of the warehousing of patients, the increased demand for healthcare services, and perhaps those that have been delayed in receiving treatment, potentially being even sicker than they might have otherwise been. So, um, you know, more to come as it relates to this, but, you know, specifically in terms of practice disruption, you're seeing basically about the expectation is about three to six months for, for most specialists. Right. And, and if it's not resolved soon, I mean, do you sort of have a sense of, you know, which parts of the healthcare system are, are going to be you know, most under pressure? Yeah, I think, you know, thinking beyond those that are directly impacted by COVID-19, both from a physician and patient perspective, you know, I'm concerned about the growing backlog of demand for care and treatment beyond those acute needs today. So existing patients are delaying care. Uh, so there's going to be warehousing, as we talked about. Additionally, many new pa potential patients are not able to access the healthcare system now. 
so there's going to be tremendous backlog for healthcare beyond the strains being placed on the system by COVID-19 in the immediate term. You know, as a consequence, that's going to put a lot of pressure on demand for specialist services in the coming months. Um, and you know, the downstream effects and the latent effects associated with patient outcomes in these ancillary conditions um, could be pretty dramatic. So, you know, for me, I think making sure that we can provide access and leverage all the tools at our disposal to maximize the reach of our specialists is going to be absolutely critical in the future. John, thank you very much, so much for taking the time to, to, to speak to me today. Um, I, I think these findings are going to be invaluable uh, to, to healthcare companies and, and looking how they can support physicians, help patients, uh, particularly in a post-pandemic world. Um, for those who'd like further reading on this, uh, there will be a link at the end of the video, um, and that will be to an executive brief that uh, is based on the survey results. Um, also, if you've got questions for, for either me or John, um, there will be a link there too. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, to tune in for uh, our next episode, follow our LinkedIn page uh, where you'll, we'll be posting adverts. Um, so in closing, uh, yeah, I'd like to thank you again, John, for, for joining us and, and also uh, like to thank uh, the audience for, for listening. Uh, on behalf of everyone at DRG and Clarivate, yeah, I'd also like to say thank, thank you and show appreciation to all those in the healthcare industry who are continuing to support patients with other health issues, irrespective of the setbacks and the challenges of the pandemic. Yeah, your contribution is not going unnoticed, so thanks. Uh, until next time, stay safe, healthy. I'm Mike Ward, and I'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye.